Chris Chang and Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi Wiskaigon, on Treaty 6 territory. We take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and then we find out the answers together. Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. This episode is part of our season exploring how humans and the rest of nature have shaped each other here. And this is a story about confronting what's in our backyard and about a 10% world. It starts at a gas station about an hour northeast of Edmonton. Shelly. Hello. Hello. You're on Let's Find Out. Yes, I am. Why are there so many cars here? I mean, we're in a parking lot. We're in a parking lot in Mundare, Alberta. And uh, where are we headed? Uh, we are headed to Satellite Cree Nation. And... Um, I'm going to get you to uh, tell listeners uh, who you are and why we're headed to Saddle Lake today. Well, I mean, from what you know. As best I can tell from this uh, mysterious adventure that I've been invited on. Yeah, my name is uh, Shelley jodouin Chouinard. I'm here, yeah, because I attended the live show a few months ago and I submitted a question. If you, if you don't know, if you weren't there, um, everybody who showed up got a card with kind of a subject on it and we had a, a little bit of a mixer where you had to kind of come up with a nature-like question that involved your, your card and somebody else's card and uh, I picked lawns because lawns uh, are surprisingly uh, controversial. Some people love them, some people hate them, um, but anyways, I, I ended up uh, crossed with somebody who had the bear card and I just had this question about what do lawns do to bears and bear habitat and did did the uh, proliferation of lawns in Edmonton affect bears in the area and and if so then how? Bears in Edmonton? <laughs> Is that a thing? I have no idea. <laughs> I I guess I assume so. I assume that there are bears all over. I I haven't ruled it out yet. I guess I guess I'll find out. Uh, I think your question is cool and confusing. Mm-hmm. Cool because I'm really interested in big predators. I'm really interested in wildlife um, ranges and how quickly baselines have shifted in North America, and we've just totally forgotten how widely the ranges of grizzly bears and black bears and wolves and stuff have changed over the last couple hundred years. Um, the lawns part is, I admit, a bit of a curveball. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, I mean, I guess you just think of, so I, I grew up in Hinton, um, very close to the mountains, and Um, I've seen a lot of bears and I've seen them in town and out of town in Jasper National Park, but, uh, I don't ever think that I've seen them just munching on somebody's lawn. And as best I know, lawns are, you know, the grass that comes from, that, that goes into a lawn is not native to North America even, I think, uh, let alone Edmonton specifically. So if they're... If Edmonton was ever a part of a, a bear, you know, habitat, then a lawn would not be a good food source for them. So my thought was, you know, if if Edmontonians, when Edmontonians started putting lawns on their properties, um, did that maybe displace what would have been natural habitat, including things that bears like to eat and sleep in and, um, and I don't know, 
whatever else they do with plants, I guess. Um, then yeah, did did we push them out with lawns maybe? And is that another like <laughs> nail in the coffin for lawns in my in my heart? <laughs> yeah. Well, the obvious place to start discussing your question is by talking to someone who um, does stone sculptures. So let's go. <laughs> Agreed. Our producer Trevor Chow Fraser chimed in here. You you have no questions about that. I mean. I, I have faith in the process. How's that? <laughs> we squished back into our car and got back on the highway. Okay, so a quick word about Taproot Edmonton. Um, I'm here with Troy, Troy Pavlak. Hi, I'm Troy. You and I both make podcasts supported by a local journalism initiative called Taproot Edmonton. What's your show called? Speaking municipally. Kind of a municipal affairs? Yeah, everything to do with council. I feel like I go to Speaking Municipally for hot takes what's your hottest take about the city right now that's a good question i got a lot of hot takes i think probably my hottest take is that uh don iverson hates public transit so um tune in to speak municipally to find out why spicy <laughs> to uh support taproot edmonton to read all the great stuff to listen to all the podcasts go to taprootedmonton.ca just do it Steinhauer. so after driving an hour farther north we pulled in at pretty much the first driveway we could see at Satellite Cree Nation. We are uh, about to turn off onto Steinhauer Stone Sculpture, the entrance to which is marked by Sculptures of Bears! <laughs> cool. Wow. Yeah. These are nice. Tobacco's in the glove compartment. This man drilling away at a block of granite in a big open-air studio is who we'd come to see. Hello. Hi. I'm Chris. Hi, Chris. Stuart. Pleasure. Nice to meet you. Hi, I'm Shelly. Hi, Shelly. I'm Trevor. Trevor. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Good to oh. meet you. Yes. Tobacco. Um, now? Yeah, now sure. Time? I like your sign. Yeah, my wife's the only one that's risky enough to try it. <laughs> It says, warning, do not attempt to pet or feed the sculptor. <laughs> we came because we wanted to get a sense for why bears capture our imaginations so much, even in the city where they're hard to see. And Stuart is a man who's made a lot of stone bears, like the sweet grass bear that's on the quad now at the University of Alberta. And he's overcome a lot to get an understanding of what bears mean in Creek culture. Uh, my name is Stuart Steinhauer. Uh, I was born in 1952, in the winter, February, and my first home was at the Saddle Lake Nursing Station down at the town site. My mother came from Toronto, trained as a public health nurse during the Second World War. She had a choice between going to Africa, South America, or working for Indian Health, something called Indian Health. Now, I dispute that term, but anyway, uh, and she chose that. There was a, a flu epidemic on at Saddle Lake. She arrived by train in Edmonton and was immediately driven out to Saddle Lake and she started work. Uh, my father was enjoying an extended bachelorhood, as many Cree men do. And my mother spotted him amongst the crowd and she decided she was gonna have him for her partner. <laughs> much later in her lives, I asked, uh, asked them why they got married and. And they looked at one another, and then 
My dad said, well, she was the first woman who wouldn't take no for an answer. When I first started carving, it was uh, after the birth of my first child, and it was just spontaneous re reaction. I can't explain it, but I've been carving ever since, and that son is going to be 46 years old. And um, my first 17 years of carving were, well, in retrospect, I see that they were art therapy for myself. When I was young, there's nothing of what we see now in terms of pre-cultural activity. There's been an amazing resurgence. But at that time, the government program was, I'd say, 100% effective. So it wasn't until I was about 30 that someone staged an intervention, like an informal intervention. They, they took me to a sweat lodge, which I'd never heard of. And in the sweat lodge, I heard an elder woman tell the story of how many of her family members had been killed in alcohol-related accidents. And it was quite an amazing story. At the end of the story, I, I thought to myself, well, I, I'm not going to be able to drink anymore. I'm going to have to quit. And that's what this person who brought me there, that was her actual intention. And, um, you know, from there, I, I stopped being able to use drugs and alcohol because I, I became conscious of the fact that I was killing myself. Over time, Stuart got more and more into ceremony, often together with his cousin Vincent. And then one day... Vincent said, let's go to the mountains, to the place where the old people used to go, and let's fast there, a blanket fast. So I said, okay. He'd done four fasts already, and I'd done four. So we went to the Kootenai Plains, to the place where the North Saskatchewan River comes out from that big glacier, just a little ways in into the Kootenai Plains from the park. You know, so we got... Uh, <laughs> there was bear. We were seeing bears all over the place. And we were out in the open. Each We had a blanket. We had a string of tobacco ties around us. We each had our pipe, and we had cloths, and we had smudge and our tobacco. And we each chose a place. And on our last night in that fast, we both were visited by bears. And in my visit, I, mean, I swore that I was really experiencing it. So the, the, the bear I met was a grandmother with a cub. And I met the cub first. And then this massive bear came and just jumped on me. And I, I'd been trained, my, you know, my Uncle Mike had told me, and Peter Ochise had told them, when you're fasting, if you get a visit, it's called a visit. When you, if you get a visit, grab your pipe and lift that pipe. And he said, if it's something bad, it'll go away. If it's something good, they'll smoke with you. And so in this dream, altered state of reality, whatever, you know, transition to another space, this massive bear approached me and I grabbed my pipe and lifted it and the bear just brushed it away and pounced on me and pushed me down onto the ground. And this face came right down to my face and, uh, you know, I was paralyzed, just laying there with this massive force and weight. I couldn't resist. And all of a sudden, I realized the bear had stopped and, and that, the bear, that something was going on. And then I could hear the bear communicating with me. The bear wasn't speaking and wasn't using a human language, but the bear was communicating, saying, you, you can't just lay there. That's not the point. You're supposed to do something. You're supposed to react. 
And, uh, you know, it, I realized that the bear was there not to hurt me, but to teach me. And as soon as I started to move, to react, come out of my paralysis, that was when the whole scene shifted. It's like it melted instantly, and I was with my dad in our old house just over here. And it was uh, you know, really quite amazing. And my dad was had been dead probably about five years by that time. But there was a little bear in the house. And my dad and I were trying to herd that bear out, out the door. We are just kind of shooing it along. And it was made of stone. And so it wasn't moving the way that uh, an organic living creature moves. It was moving the way that well, all these clever young people with digital te technology, they make like series of photographs and make a little animation. Like they move in, in steps, right? They don't move fluidly. And that's what this little bear was moving. And in fact, the little bear uh, drifted up and he, and he began to turn slowly in space in 3D. And I realized the little bear was speaking to me. Uh, the little bear was saying, look at me. This is what I look like. And as the bear turned, the stone, you know, and all these little, I, I got to see all of the possible poses and positions of the bear, and that's the bear that I've been carving. To Stuart, it's not that he's a sculptor per se. It's that he works with the rock grandfather to make sculptures together, to say something to people. And bear sculptures are a language that a lot of people seem to want to speak. As uh, I was already into my commercial carving, when I had that fast where I met the bear and I started carving bears, and I discovered that Canadians have an obsession with bears. Canadians want bears. And I, it's overwhelming to me. You know, I, I, There's all sorts of subject matter for me to carve, but it's like it, almost everything gets pushed off the agenda in order to have time to carve bears. And, and uh, at this point in my career, I keep a stock of commercially viable bear sculptures ready to sell. That's why you see that collection just outside the door, and then there's that cabinet has more. And you know, when I, the yard is filled with pieces that are at various stages ready to carve into the bear form. Stuart opened a tall wooden cabinet to show us some of his work. Long term below, short term, these are three pieces that'll head to Banff. You were, t you were talking earlier about, um, you are talking about bears being something that people are kind of obsessed with and people request them a lot. What, what do you think about that, about the bears being this um, kind of exotic thing that people like seeing? Well, my, my cousin Vincent, you know, I keep coming back to him, that's too bad he, wow, and it's hard to believe he's passed away. I mean, he watched my developing sculpture career with, with interest and when he saw how how persistent the demand was again and again and again for bear bear images from a, a non-native Canadian population, he assessed it, and my cousin Diana, his sister, my primary mentor, you know, agreed with him that the bear's function within the cultural context is to help humans with bonding to the earth. It's very hard for us human beings to see the planet we live on as a being. You know, she's huge. He also thinks bears have a different meaning for settlers. But how could people move from the land of their ancestors and leave behind you know, all the grave remains and the history, thousands of years of living, and move to a place where they have no connection to the land? They're just coming now. They're, you know, maybe one generation, maybe two, perhaps three 
you know, how do they deal with that on a psychological, emotional level? And uh, my cousin Vincent speculated that the bear spirit through the rock, the bear grandfather through the rock grandfather is helping a immigrant population. You know, I don't use that term disparagingly. Just you know, perhaps there's a better way to, to frame it. But you know, people who've come to this land and, and don't have an original connection to this land, for them to get connected. And because I, I watch it happen over and over, and, uh, I make bears in small scale, but I also make bears in huge scale. And I watch what happens when I put those big bears out in public spaces. You know, people really want them there. They're really strongly connected, and they connect quickly. Uh, it's irrational. <laughs> you know? Irrational or not, we got a lot more for you here about how far bears used to roam in Alberta. That's in a minute. Well, yeah. enjoy the rest of your day. I'm going to get back to making mud. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a new podcast I think you'll like. Season one of Undercurrent, produced by the Narwhal, is about Bear 148, a much-loved grizzly bear who lived and died in Alberta's Bow Valley. Here's a taste. This is the story of a bear. Certain areas, certain bears gain a, a greater profile 148 has been in the news, um, you know, she walks across the parking lot and she's on the front page of a national newspaper. Bear 148 was a female grizzly bear who lived most of her life in Banff, Canada's busiest national park. She wasn't afraid of people, and she became a sort of local celebrity who was seen, photographed, and written up in the news a lot. So people come, came to know her, and you know, you come to know something, then you feel attached to it, and something bad happens and you feel bad. When Bear 148 left the National Park, she crossed an invisible border and walked into a new set of rules. We've drawn all of these lines on a map and we've said, okay, over here, do this and this will happen and do that and this will happen over there. And it's a very complex rule book and um, bears can't read. Crossing that border would set into motion a series of events that would lead up to Bear 148's death, nearly 500 kilometers northwest of her home. For The Narwhal, I'm Molly Siegel, and this is Bear 148, a podcast that tells the story of the life and death of a bear that captivated a community. Subscribe now and find Bear 148 in your podcast feed in June 2019. The entire six-part series is now available. Search for Bear 148 wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at thenarwhal.ca slash undercurrent. This episode of Let's Find Out is also brought to you in part by a podcast called Your Forest. Hey guys, my name is Matthew Kristoff, and I'm an advocate for sustainability and environmental sciences. If you've ever wanted to know how our natural world is being managed, check out my podcast, Your Forest, where I talk with researchers and professionals in the field of environmental sciences about the work they do and the things they love. It's all about our natural world and how we manage it. Climate change to conservation, wilderness survival, wildfire, all kinds of stuff. If we're going to give up on something like trumpeter swans, then functionally we would give up on the value of wetlands. Coined the term sustainability. You know, forests to me are my spiritual place. It's, it's where I go to relax, to reset myself, to reconnect. This bird had flown um, over 100,000 kilometers in its life. Climate change doesn't mean that we're going to lose all of our forests. Again, it just might mean that there's a different forest. And uh, how we got here is we approached the peak by helicopter. <laughs> um, the importance of fire in, in a wilderness situation just can't be understated. 
It's all about sustainability. Check out Your Forest on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks a lot, guys. See you out there. All right, we're back. Okay, Shelly, we are um, in my backyard, um, sort of amidst um, a lawn. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> so I have a, a quick bear quiz for you before we talk to our biologist today. Uh-oh, I, I didn't study. I think they'll be easy. Okay. Okay, question one. Which of Alberta's two bear species are the general public allowed to hunt in Alberta? Black bears or grizzlies? Uh, black bears. True. True or false, a black bear was spotted and killed in St. Albert this May. True. True. For listeners slightly outside of Edmonton, St. Albert is like a suburb of Edmonton. It's essentially like greater Edmonton. Which U.S. state has a grizzly bear on its flag, even though the last known grizzly there was seen in 1924? Uh, geez, I don't know. Nevada? <laughs> California. Really? Mm. They don't have any bears there? That's wild. No grizzlies. Oh, grizzlies specifically. Do you know if they have other bears? I, I don't know. I don't have that prepared. Mm, well, who's winning this <laughs> quiz now? <laughs> okay, question four. Why do you hate lawns? <laughs> Is that a quiz? <laughs> Is this a right or wrong question? <laughs> um, Why do you have an anti-lawn agenda, Shelley? <laughs> I don't have an anti-lawn agenda. Um, I mean, I don't have a lawn, and I hope that I never will. But um, it's you know, it's personal. It's not. Uh, it's not meant for everyone else. But I, uh, I, I just think it's kind of a useless way to have land, or you know, it's. It's not a very useful use of land. Mm. That's mostly it. You know, like, um, you can, I'm just, I'm looking at your little, your cute little garden here. And that's so much more productive if you're going to have a slice of land. And, um, you know, people always say, well, you know, where are you going to play? And where are my kids going to play? And, um, like, rock on if your kids actually use your yard. Or if you actually use your yard. But I feel like, for the most part, I just see people spending hours a week maintaining it, and it takes a lot of resources, like water and fertilizers and things like that. Um, and most people don't really use it. So I, for me, anyways, I, I just think it's so much more worthwhile to just go to a city-maintained park that we already pay for, and then just, you know, if you have some, if you have some land on your property, do something constructive with it. <laughs> um, and that's probably what I would do if I ever happened to own a lawn of some kind. It probably wouldn't survive as a lawn for very long. That's generous of you to call our garden productive because it is also being colonized by grass right now. Okay, last question on th this bear quiz. Um, why do you want people in Edmonton to be eaten by bears? <laughs> uh oh, <laughs> I see how this is turning. Uh, no, I, I don't want people to eat, be eaten by bears. Bears don't usually eat people. I think it would be nice, though, if we got to spot some. Is this your pro Hinton bias? Is this why you want us to be eaten? No, absolutely not. <laughs> Nobody gets eaten by bears in Hinton either, if that just PSA. <laughs> okay. So this morning we're going to talk to Anya Sorensen. She is a uh, wildlife biologist with FRI Research. She works on their grizzly research program. Very cool. And I have heard of them. The, and they're based in Hinton. Yes, they are. Yep, that's why I've heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not going there. We're going to call her.
FRI Research. Anya speaking. Hi, Anya. This is Chris Chang and Phillips. Hi. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Good. Um, what are we holding you back from again this morning? Uh, oh, we were just getting ready to head out into the field this morning to go uh, check on some GPS points from one of our collared bears moving around. Wow. Cool. Uh, so my name is Anya Sorensen. And I'm a wildlife biologist on the grizzly bear research program here at FRI Research in Hinton. So can we first, can you just tell us how, how do you measure how many grizzlies there are in Alberta? Like, is this a phone survey? Are we going door to door, knocking on bear dens? What, what's the procedure? <laughs> yeah, if only. Uh, it's, a, it's a really complicated process, right? I mean, anytime um, you go out in public, one of my favorite things about my job actually is anytime you talk to Albertans, everybody's got a story about bears, right? And you could go around knocking on landowners' doors and everybody could tell you, you know, I saw 10 bears last year or, you know, back on that quarter section over there, back in the back pasture, there's at least three bears or, you know, there's a mom with two cubs. Everybody has these sightings. But when it comes to conducting good science, we need to go on something a little bit stronger than just observational data. So for a long time, um, the process um, in the province of Alberta and across a lot of North America has been using um, hair as a source of DNA to identify unique bears in an area and get a count of, of how many there are. So what that process looks like on the ground, we set up these barbed wire hair snag sites so it's a single strand of barbed wire wrapped around four or five trees in kind of a corral shape. And then in the center of that corral, we stack um, some sticks and moss and logs and then pour out a scent lure on this kind of elevated pile. And that scent lure, um, there's no food reward, but it smells really appealing to bears who come in to investigate what's going on there. And they have to either climb over the barbed wire or slide underneath to get into the center of this corral to the scent lure. And in doing so, they leave a hair sample snagged on this barbed wire. So that's our source of DNA. That's what we're after. Um, and with all of those DNA samples across a huge area, we conduct some fancy statistics about how many times a single bear was detected and redetected across the sampling period. And we can kind of get um, a population estimate. I also saw on the website, there is an app that I tried to download, um, partly because it looked interesting, also because it had a poop emoji icon, but I couldn't get to it. Can you tell us about the app? <laughs> yeah, so the Grizzly Scat app, um, it is going through um, a bit of a revamp process with the app store, so if it's temporarily unavailable, I apologize. <laughs> um, but basically, in the same way that we collect DNA from hair samples, um, we're experimenting with a kind of a newer process of extracting DNA from scat samples as well. Wait, wait, wait. I, I have to know, sorry, tell me more about this, how this app works, because like my phone doesn't have like a DNA sequencing attachment to it. <laughs> sure. So we distribute these um, scat sampling kits. So you, before you head out anywhere, you have your kit in hand and um, the app downloaded on your phone. None of this requires cell service, so you can be completely out of service, but say you're on a backcountry hike or um, you're working doing cut block layout or something like that, and you find a grizzly bear scat sample. Perfect. So you pull out one of the vials we have. Um, these vials contain silica beads to dry out the sample. It just takes a teeny tiny little bit like 
the size of the fingernail on your pinky, just a little scoop, put it in the vial, snap it shut. Then with your smartphone, you scan the barcode that's on that vial, and it instantly captures um, the date, time, and your GPS location. Um, and then once you're back in service, you can just hit submit, and um, that record gets sent to our database. Then um, samples can get shipped to us here at uh, the FRI office, and we send them to our colleagues in Norway, actually. Oh, wow. Um, the lab there does the DNA extraction. Yeah, they're some of the best in the world when it comes to dealing with DNA and grizzly bear scat. Um, and then ultimately, once we get our results back, um, we're enabling the app to have two-way communication. So then we could communicate back to our citizen scientist, this grizzly bear was perhaps G163. Um, and this is a bear that we've actually detected before in this area and this area and this area and um, have a method to, to communicate those results back to the public. Wow, that is so cool. <laughs> uh, I, I'm imagining like you get little like poop emoji achievements as you like find more bears. <laughs> Um, I uh, I love how fixated you are on the poop oh emoji. Oh God! I just I just I love that so much. Okay, I promise. I have, uh, this is my last childish question. I promise. I I I do actually have like real questions for you. Sure. Is there We're professionals? Does it the kit? It comes with vials. Does it come with a spoon or something or how? Do... It does. It comes with um, latex gloves and little popsicle sticks for you to scoop with. So safety is number one. <laughs> and we want to make sure that everybody's keeping it clean out there. Amazing. Thank you. Okay. Uh, you know, <clears throat> when I think of a uh, pooper scooper for a bear, uh, popsicle stick seems <laughs> like maybe not quite <laughs> adequate to take on the task. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I see how that works now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. I promise I have a real question now. Okay. Sure. Um, how many grizzlies are there in Alberta? So that's a really complicated question. Um, the process that I described before doing the barbed wire hair snags, um, we've done a lot of that work again since back in 2004. And in each one of Alberta's seven population units, um, we've done one of these barbed wire hair snags. Um, of course, that just provides one snapshot in time, right? Um, so for instance, um, the Yellowhead Bear Management Area, where we are located in Hinton right now, uh, that was surveyed back in 2004. It was surveyed again in 2014. Um, but some of the other population units, like um, the Swan Hills area, for instance, was surveyed for the first time just last year. So at any given point in time, it's hard to have a province-wide population estimate when it's just based on these snapshots um, from smaller localized area. Um, the most recent provincial update we have is actually from the 2010 um, status report, the recovery strategy for um, grizzly bears. Um, and back then they had an estimate based on these um, barbed wire hair snag sites and some habitat modeling and a bit of expert opinion. Um, and the number they landed on was 691, plus or minus a few. So uh, I definitely grew up thinking of um, bears as a mountain 
thing. Um, and uh, when I've looked at maps of grizzly range in Alberta these days, um, they tend to be like mountain and foothills associated. How does that compare to their historical range? Yeah, so um, grizzly bears used to be largely a prairie species as well. So um, some of the earliest written accounts of encounters with grizzly bears on the Canadian prairies come from um, folks like Henry Kelsey or David Thompson and Anthony Henday and these incredible um, diaries and ledgers of some of the early explorers and fur traders um, who were documenting these observations across Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, not just in um, the Rocky Mountains and foothills, but across the prairies and parklands. Mind blown, Shelley? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty surprised. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely haven't heard very many stories of, of grizzlies away from the mountains. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, gr growing up in Hinton uh, and then going to university in Edmonton, I definitely know a lot of people who didn't grow up in the mountains, and they, that's where they think they go to see bears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, why don't we see grizzlies all the way over into that historical range anymore? Did lawns have anything to do with it? <laughs> it's funny when you mention lawns. If you think about this um, question, kind of big picture, and you imagine what uh, the prairies and parkland region of Manitoba and Saskatchewan and Alberta looked back then and what we see today, it is kind of a lawn in some ways, a giant monoculture um, of agricultural crops, right? We've had wide scale, it's immense, it's mind-boggling if you think about it, the landscape change that we've seen um, since the early 1800s, right? Um, it's it's mind-boggling the amount of, of agriculture and conversion of land from native prairie to cropland for cereals and canola or tame pasture for livestock. Um, so it's the decline in the grizzly bear population during that 19th century is mainly attributed to European exploration and settlement, um, the introduction of firearms, and the eradication of wild bison from these uh, prairie regions. Hmm. Do you have a sense of what the interactions were between wild bison and grizzly bears once upon a time? I don't. Um, but I know that there are um, some really interesting accounts from those early explorers um, who were observing these immense bison herds and um, the carnivore populations, wolves and, and cougars and grizzly bears, um, who relied on these uh, populations as a primary food source. Of course, grizzly bears, they're an opportunistic omnivore. So um, in addition to these sources of meat that they would have had, um, things like Buffalo berry, um, Saskatoons, choke cherries, different roots and things like that on the prairie would have been um, a substantial food source for them as well, which would have also been lost during this conversion to agriculture. And I think there is um, a desire that a lot of Albertans have to see these animals on the landscape, but maybe not in my backyard. You know, it's a classic uh, dilemma there. Anya's thought that folks don't necessarily want grizzlies all the way back into the prairies. I'd have to say even folks who really respect and appreciate bears in the mountains tend to agree with her. Like, 
I was in an art gallery the other day and I was speaking with one of the curators there, Ellen Cunningham. And like Anya said, if you mention you're working on something about bears, people just start sharing stories. And this curator, she was really adamant that folks in the mountains need to learn to share space. Tell me more about that. Well, I mean, there's lots of places where this might be, um, this relationship would be a challenge, but Canmore is, it's, it's a community. It's like, it's a city, and it, but it is in the mountains. So bears belong in the mountains. They belong in Canmore. And yet humans have moved in there and think that they have greater rights to live there than bears do. So there was a woman that was killed there probably 12 years ago. She was jogging on the, the municipal trails in Canmore and I think she, she tried to climb a tree or something and anyways, she was killed by this bear and it sparked this huge controversy like what should they do to control the bears? And I happened to work for Parks Canada at the time, so I was hearing all this naturalist perspective on, on this. It was outside, it's outside of the National Park, but um, we are so egocentric to think that our life is more valuable and important than bears' lives, and like they should be either tranquilized or killed, depending on the circumstance. And, and I, it's just, it's the wrong attitude. If you want to live in the mountains, you are subject to the, the risks of, of that ecosystem. I don't think that that's the right attitude. So I think bears belong there as much as maybe humans do and survival of the fittest, man. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> okay, I have kind of an extreme question. You're talking about like bears are there and people have moved in so like we need to defer to bears. Uh, you know, like bears have been in this area too historically. Yeah. Like what do you think about the idea of doing things to reintroduce bears farther on to the prairies. Reintroduce bears? <laughs> ah! <laughs> um, I don't know about that, Chris. <laughs> I don't want bears in my backyard. We have coyotes in our backyard, and they killed our neighbor's dogs. Like, that's happening. But bears? Yep. Grizzly bears are a prairie animal. Shelley and I walked through some of the research showing that. Starting with his 1975 report by Pia L. Nielsen, The Past and Present Status of the Plains and Boreal Forest Grizzly Bear in Alberta. Uh, Anya was talking about um, explorers' journals. Um, so I found a couple excerpts from such journals. Really? Okay, let's see that. <laughs> it's kind of a beaten up, um, coiled document. And uh, if we flip it open, um, you can see that when Pia. L. Nielsen uh, wrote it in 1975. Um, it was actually not intended for publication. Um, Interesting. Journals kept by the first white men to visit the Canadian prairies contain references to grizzlies as far east as Manitoba. Henry the Younger reported an abundance of the bears in the Hare Hills and at Lac de Diable in the Red River Valley. They're mentioned in the narrative of Henry Kelsey, who in 1691 was the first white person to hike inland as far as the Great Plains. He described the grizzly as a great sort of bear, which is bigger than any white bear, is neither white nor black, but silver-haired like our English rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Cocking spoke of an abundance of grizzle bears of the fierce kind east of the South Saskatchewan River in the Birch Hills, which is in um, Saskatchewan today. So this report um, sort of lines up with what Anya was saying about when grizzlies di like disappeared on the prairies, basically. Um, <clears throat> yep. Um, so this report links it basically to... 1872 and the Dominion's Land Act and 
quote unquote settlement of the prairies as as if as if they were empty um mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. basically like european settlement of the prairies right the bears were gradually declining in number just from like hunting but the province's population did not really suffer until large-scale ranching and farming were initiated the first substantial immigration of pioneer farmers began after 1872 when the dominions land act was passed during that period of population influx, 1870 to 1900, the last grizzly sightings in southern Alberta were recorded. According to Farley in 1926, the Dumont brothers spoke of occasionally meeting bears along the rivers in the Camrose area before the district was settled. One late fall day, they found a grizzly den at the junction of Beaverdam Creek and the Battle River. They routed out and shot a sow and two cubs. Um, by the 1880s, some people no longer considered the grizzly bear to be a true inhabitant of the plains. John McCoon in 1882 stated that the grizzly bear resided only in the Peace River District in the Rocky Mountains, but was a frequent visitor to the open plains. Um, and then... That, that gives me goosebumps. Like, here we are. <laughs> we came in and, and completely changed the habitat and um, displaced their habitat and then said, oh, they don't really live here, they're just a visitor. What Shelley said reminded me of something that Stuart Steinhauer told us. When he was talking about residential schools and missing and murdered indigenous women, all these attempts to destroy his culture that his community had overcome. He said, It's a a sign of of a deep level of distress within a society, that a society can commit genocide and be completely unaware of it. But here's a twist I bet you didn't see coming. We've been talking about grizzlies. How about black bears? I did find a paper on uh, distribution of black bears in North America. So this this might actually shock you, because um, we were talking about grizzlies and how much their range has declined. Um, you can see a, a side-by-side comparison in this paper by Brian Sheck and Walter McCown in Ursus Journal from 2014. Um, so this is the historical range they show for black bears in North America. Um, it goes all the way into Mexico. Um, I'm, they don't give a, a baseline year for historic range here, but it goes through like three quarters of Alberta, basically everywhere, basically everywhere except what's the finest grasslands in this paper. They cite as historical range of black bears based on tons of surveys with biologists all over North America. Mm-hmm. So um, this is the map of current black bear range in North America. And if you look at Alberta, they actually, um, in this paper, found that black bears are basically in every piece of their historical range in our province. Wow. Except that, for... That's surprising. Yeah. Um, I, wow. <laughs> so if grizzlies used to roam all the way to Manitoba, how many of them used to be in modern-day Alberta? And could they come back? We made one more call to find out. To the Alberta Wilderness Association HQ down in Calgary. Yeah, so my name is Nessa Peterson and I'm a conservation specialist for AWA. So um, that's kind of a a loaded title. I have a lot of different hats that I wear, Um, but mainly mainly what I do is um, advocacy and then also education. When I was, I was about probably 14 or so, and when I was growing up, um, I spent a lot of time in the outdoors with my dad, and I remember that we were we were going up a seismic line. We were somewhere in the foothills. I can't remember exactly where, 
um, probably somewhere out west past Nordic. Um, and we were, we're going up a seismic line. And I remember just as we got to like the top of this, this hillside, we could see a grizzly that was like, he was, he was a comfortable distance away, but <laughs> that's always the feeling you have. You're like, all right, that's beautiful, but I'm going to turn around and go the other way. <laughs> just because, you know, you want to maintain that, that distance. But I remember seeing, seeing him on the other, like, uh, crest of the, the valley ahead of us. And, and he was, I don't know, like I'm saying he, but it, who knows what it was, but, um, it was just so surreal. You're just like, wow. And you see them in person and it's just like a whole different experience because again, I don't think you appreciate it until you actually come quote unquote face to face with a grizzly bear because they're just so massive. And, and, and the fact that, you know, they've been able to, you know, change alongside of people, I think is so admirable, but they are struggling. And I, and as much as it is, it's so amazing to see a grizzly in the wild. You know, I, I want future generations to have that experience. I want, I want my kids to be able to um, come across a grizzly at a respectable distance in the wild. They have adapted. It's just, you know, I think a matter of time before they're just not going to have the space that they need. And that's, that's the saddest part about it because it's such a iconic part of Alberta's wilderness. And I don't think we, we fully appreciate uh, what's at stake of, of being lost. It's pretty mind blowing how big Grizzly Range used to be in mm-hmm. North America compared to its size now. But mm-hmm. I, I'm also really curious about abundance, how many grizzlies um, there are now compared to how many there used to be. W- what do we know about how many grizzlies used to be in Alberta before the arrival of European explorers and settlers? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think we're we're probably talking about like it's 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 hard to say because um, you know those things weren't really documented back then. <laughs> and that's not even to say that we do a good job now but <laughs> we're, we're getting better um but I'm, we're probably looking in terms of resident populations within alberta like i would say in the thousands for sure again it's it's a little bit difficult to know for sure um and because they are such a a large animal and they don't reproduce relatively quickly in comparison to other species um i would say you're probably looking at you know, thousands of of grizzly bears, and and that has contracted to about six or seven hundred individuals within Alberta today. And those numbers are even difficult to uh, really account for because there's so much migration that happens between the British Columbia and Alberta border. So um, again, because their ranges are so large, you have grizzly bears that aren't necessarily um, residents of of Alberta permanently right they need to they need to cover a lot of ground to sustain themselves so I think as of right now we're we're probably looking at anywhere between 600 to 700. There's um I don't know if you've read The Once in Future World by um, J.B. McKinnon um sort of a theme in his book is that we live in a a 10% world where there's about 10% of species richness and abundance compared to a couple hundred years ago um does that track for you at all i notice on the alberta wilderness association website like under grizzlies in history it has an estimate of about six to eight thousand grizzlies in alberta yeah um does that seem about right to you recognizing there's some uncertainty big time i that's i think that's completely accurate and 
And and it's interesting, too, because I feel like that concept eludes a lot of people. I think, you know, in, in our urban settings, like, we see wildlife and we think, like, oh, you know, things are, things are all right. But, you know, a lot of those, you know, urban wildlife populations are opportunistic species. Nissa talked about how the Alberta Wilderness Association is member-funded, so they can say and advocate for things that maybe other organizations couldn't, because those organizations don't want to risk their funding from industry or government. So I figured if anyone would go really far on a limb to have a big vision of wilderness restoration in this conversation, it'd be them. But I was surprised to hear that their goals are more along the lines of participating in the province's grizzly recovery plan and protecting grizzlies where they are today. I think in terms of like our our big vision for AWA and grizzly bears is is that we want to see these keystone species remain within Alberta's wilderness because again they are a block at the foundation of of so many ecosystems in in our province that if we lose them you know the whole pyramid is just going to crumble and 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 it, biodiversity is really important to human population so if we can conserve grizzly bears in Alberta, you know, we can, we can do a lot for our wilderness. It's, um, it's just a matter of, you know, getting people on board with the idea and finding solutions. So. I think Shelly and I have both sort of trafficked in the sustainability world. Um, Mm -hmm. and one of the things that comes up a lot in sustainability is that just the word doesn't really get people excited um, of like maintaining or sustaining or conserving what we have right now. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the idea of reintroducing grizzlies to the prairies of like trying to reintroduce that 90% that is missing <laughs> right now from their abundance? Um, well, I think, I think the biggest challenge to that would be is that we just don't have the numbers right now. Right. Like, again, they are really, slow to reproduce and and that's not even to say that all the cubs that you know one so would have in a year would actually be recruited to the adult population so because they're such a large species and they need a vast range um i think if we wanted to reintroduce them to the prairie that's it's 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 almost um Unfortunately, I don't think it would be possible just with the level of, of of establishment in terms of urban settings that we have. And, you know, a lot a lot of the problems that, um, you know, farmers and ranchers are running into in the foothills area is the fact that, you know, bears are coming in and coming into onto their properties and, and, and looking for, for food, essentially. So you have a lot of conflict going on there. And there's a lot of great work that's being done in order to help farmers and ranchers um, coexist, essentially, um, so that, you know, they're not losing uh, a significant amount of, of money and time and resources to having these bears overlapping with their areas. Um, but you know, I just, I can't see it ever being uh, possible in the sense that, in, at the rate at which our urban settings are growing. Wow. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's really sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it can get kind of grim, but you know, like I, I have a lot of faith, you know, I think, I think people, you know, with, with the day and age where I are right now and, and challenges that we're facing with, with climate change, I think people are, are, they, they are getting on board. Our heritage and, and who we are as Albertans is like intrinsically linked to our wilderness. And so I feel like if we, if we don't 
if we don't do something to conserve it, you know, we're only doing ourselves a disservice. And, and yeah, so <laughs> I could go on and on about that. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I agree. I, I, I think that one thing that links everyone together, regardless of how ambitious they are about things like conservation and, and climate change and that sort of thing, is that we do have this strong connection, this strong, um, yeah, bit of our identity that lies in our wilderness and totally. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that helps us a- along the way a lot. Right. If mm-hmm. if that's not worth saving, then you know what is at this point. You know, I I just I feel like it's such a big part of like you said our identity and and it's it's a worthwhile cause. It's 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 a battle worth fighting for most most certainly. So. Hopefully, I answered your guys' question. <laughs> I could go on these like long rabbit hole fields. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so. No, no, you definitely. We got there. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. How does the length of a rabbit hole compare to the depth of a bear den? <laughs> um, well, I think rabbit holes are pretty shallow, whereas like bear dens, it has to be, I think, relatively deep because one, it. it the deeper it is, the better it's insulated for, like, winter. And then also, if they're having cubs, that kind of, you know, they need some wiggle room in there. So I think I think it's a, a fair distance. So if we try to popularize this as, like, a new expression, maybe this will be our part of our little... Yeah, yeah, we should leverage bear. that. It will be a bit of our culture shift. <laughs> Let it catch on. Of this. Yeah. So we learned that black bears are doing okay in Alberta. But it would take a lot for grizzlies to come back to the Edmonton area. And honestly, a lot more of that work of sharing space would fall on folks in rural areas nearby. But we're starting to remember what's missing here. I kept thinking today a little bit of that sign that says you're in bear country. Mm. And I, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that we're suddenly entering bear country when we hit the foothills. But, um, but we've really been in bear country all along. We have a bear sticker on the back of our car, like a, like bear pride, like big burly gay men. Um, that kind of makes me like, kind of happy that we have that now. <laughs> it's a total reinterpretation of that sticker. <laughs> so we really are still in bear country then. Yeah, totally yeah. still in bear country. And you're keeping the signage up for the rest of us. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Let's Find Out is produced by Trevor Chow Fraser and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. Sign up for our newsletter to hear about new episodes, live events, recipes, and updates on the book club this season. We are reading books every month that tie into some of these big ideas about humans and nature. On Thursday, June 27th, we're meeting up to talk about Dream Work by Mary Oliver. That's at the Mill Creek Cafe. Meetup details on our website. And in July, we'll be reading The Once in Future World by J.B. McKinnon. We'll be meeting up to talk about that on July 25th. You don't need to read the book. Just come out and chat. Thank you to Shelley jodouin Schwinar, Stuart Steinhauer, Anya Sorensen, Ellen Cunningham, and Nissa Peterson. Thanks also to Alana Gemmel and Taproot Edmonton and the Edmonton Historical Board. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting this podcast, especially Finn. 
Original music for this podcast is by the fiercely lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Until next time, keep your questions coming.